0: University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. So sometimes companies make brilliant rebranding decisions, such as when Old Spice decided to stand out from the rest of their competitors uh, in their deodorant industry by, by coming up with a series of outrageous commercials that had nothing to do with their product, but the name stuck and their sales soared. And then there is the example of something like Radio Shack. Years back, the company decided that the best thing they should do in their shrinking market, losing business to online retailers and big box stores, was to change their name. That's right, instead of changing their approach to how they sold what they sold, how they met the needs of their customers, and innovatively rethinking their whole model, they just changed their name to The Shack. Now, The Shack is a great name of a phenomenal novel and one of the great basketball players of all time. However, it's not what you want your store to be called. And the company realized this with a multi-million dollar error, reverting back to Radio Shack, only to continue to see their sales drop. And instead of learning and adapting, they chose this. They subsequently closed over 1,000 stores, leaving only 70 open in the country. Not exactly the rebrand that they imagined. We're in our series, Rebranding. We're examining how we see ourselves and others. In reality, the way that we see ourselves matters. It directly correlates to the way that we see everyone and everything else in the world. Self-perception is one of the most challenging aspects of being human. So over the last several weeks, we have been looking at what it would take to see ourselves in a different light, such as the person who is loved and forgiven, rather than a person who is condemned and worthless. For our conversation this morning, we turn to the book of Jonah, Chapter one, verse one. Now, Jonah is tucked away in the minor prophets between Obadiah and Micah, and Jonah one one reads, "The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me." Let's be honest. If God came to you in an audible voice, that would be pretty awesome. And then, if God invites you to go on an adventure to some far-off place, many of us would ask, when do I book the flights and when do I start packing my bags? Oh, the places you will go, Jonah. As a person who's been serving in vocational ministry for over 20 years, I never would have thought that saying yes to being a minister would have me traveling to some pretty remarkable places. I've been to Ecuador and Malaysia, Sri Lanka and the UK and Cuba, all on ministry-related trips. So this story is starting off on a right direction. Verse 2 states, verse 3 states, But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for the port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So we need to talk about Nineveh. I forgot to mention that God's call to Jonah to go there might be met with some apprehension. Nineveh was the capital of the former empire of Assyria, the very empire that happened to destroy the northern kingdoms of Israel in 722 BC. The Assyrians deported thousands of Israelites and resettled them on all parts of their empire. The Syrian policy was to deport a conquered foe to other lands to destroy their sense of nationalism and to break any pride and hope of rebellion, replacing them with strangers from far away. Those they defeated were met with substantial psychological torment. The Assyrians were infamous for filleting their captives, for cutting off body parts, and for stacking mounds of human skulls to the entrance of cities to remind people who they were. God wanted Jonah as a foreign prophet to go to the heart of the Assyrian empire and to preach a hard message of necessary change. As one scholar put it, sending Jonah to Nineveh is the equivalent of sending a speaker to deliver a moral exhortation to the Germans in Berlin in 1936. Tarsus was the opposite direction of Nineveh. Jonah headed west when God was calling him to head east. Do you remember that old Billy Joel song that goes something like this, you may be right, I may be crazy, but it just might be the lunatic you're looking for? I I don't know if Jonah believed God was right, but he knew he was not crazy and not wanting to go to that place with those people to preach that message. What is good is a prophet of God when your head is going to end up on a pike for offending the locals. Jonah doesn't even bother with arguing with God. He just runs away as if God was some regional deity. I'll just go to the next country over there, and God won't find me there. I bet we can connect with Jonah. Every day we run into opportunities to live in a way that God desires for us, seen through the life and teachings of Jesus. It's a way that calls us to peace and justice and mercy and compassion and self-control and honesty and integrity and goodness and kindness and patience. But sometimes, living in that way doesn't fit in with what we want, where we want to go and what we want to do. So rather than living in God's calling, we just run away from it. Sure, we don't head to Tarshish, but we tune out God's word and tune into whatever gets us what we want, no matter what we have to do or say or justify to get it. Following God's way means that we have to be honest about our hidden follies, our shortcomings, our prejudices, our mistakes. And that's why it's much easier to just run away. The narrator tells us that Jonah boards a ship heading west while he believes God is staying in the east. But as the ship is on its voyage, a great storm arises that's so violent that it threatens to break the ship apart. And the crew of the ship is sent into a panic, doing everything they can to get the vessel to stay afloat. And guess who's sleeping in the deck below when this whole ordeal is taking place? Jonah. But he is awoken by the crew who is convinced that someone aboard has offended the gods. So they cast religious dice to find the culprit, only for it to land on Jonah. And the crew demands that Jonah tell them who he is and what he has done and what God he has offended because they knew it was his fault. History has has given us some pretty amazing blunders. Homer tells us that the Trojans were so confident in their defeat of the Greeks that they uh, brought in this massive wooden horse trophy left by their foes. There inside the horse, the Greek soldiers waited for the Trojans to waste away in their drunken celebration. Despite knowing that Pisa was located on marshy, unsuitable ground, an Italian architect built the tower anyways, and for nearly 900 years, this 183-foot tower has leaned four degrees off. Did you know that the original recording of the first moon landing of Neil Armstrong was actually erased and recorded over by a NASA specialist years ago? Just a few years ago, the French government spent $15 billion on a fleet of new trains, only to discover that they were too wide for nearly 1,300 station platforms. There is a a most famous saying to air is human. We've all been there before. I can remember being in grade school full of confidence, shooting my hand up in the air to give the answer to the teacher, only to be met with the teacher saying, wrong. There isn't enough space under a table to crawl under when you feel the eyes of your entire class looking at you like you were a complete idiot. We all make mistakes every single day. Ever make a post on Facebook that didn't seem all that smart a few hours later? Do you ever click on that link thinking you're going to win some sort of prize only to have your computer crash with a virus? Roll through a stop sign or turn on a red light without thinking about it just to see the police officer on the other side. Often our errors are repetitive. We, we lose our cell phone. We procrastinate. We spend money on useless stuff. We rush through work. We show up late again and again. Did you know that 88% of data breaches within an organization or government are caused by human error? Did you know that, that medical errors are the third leading cause of death in America, second only to heart disease and cancer? We are all prone to overestimating our abilities, to making impulsive decisions, and a lapse of attention. And for all honest, we all make mistakes. That's a fact that most of us can agree on. What we have a problem with is the consequences of our mistakes. There's the the first emotional turmoil that comes with making mistakes, that feeling of shame and humiliation and self-recrimination and fear and insecurity and anxiety. Those raw emotions often lead us to handle our mistakes internally and often in ways externally that are very different and at odds with others. Often it is the consequences that go unseen by others that propel us into a a mindset that we are immune from error and future consequences. We turn our attention to amplifying others' mistakes in hopes that it might minimize or hide our own. We cover up our mistakes by avoiding them altogether, acting like they are not there or running away from them. A lot of the time we don't learn from our errors. One study Participants reviewed their past spending habits before they were sent off on a shopping trip. And 35% of the participants in the study repeated the same poor spending habits all over again, despite that they reviewed them right before they went out shopping. Psychologists have found that when we believe we are right and great at things, we tend to not believe that we will make mistakes or fail. When we think we are at our best, It's sometimes when we're at our objective worst. In Pittsburgh a couple years ago, a, a man robbed two banks in broad daylight without a disguise or a mask or a hood. He did this because he believed that the lemon juice he had rubbed on his face would make him invisible to the security cameras, since lemon juice could also be used for invisible ink. It's hilariously sad. I'm still scratching my head on this one. Rightness is the leading cause of our inability to own our mistakes. It's a basic human nature to want to be right. We seek to validate our viewpoint and perspective uh, as, as the right one, though often it's to the detriment of ourselves and to those around us. You don't even have to pick anything controversial such as politics to understand this. Just look at our views of SEC football and watch out. We are obsessed with loving fanatics, obsessed with right and wrong, or at least what we deem to be right and wrong. And this obsession of trying to prove why you are right and someone else is wrong leads us to say some of the most heinous things, ripping apart friendships and families. Do you remember that idiot Alabama fan that poisoned the tree in Toomer's Corner in Auburn a couple years ago? Small note, he was a citizen of the state of Louisiana. (laughs) Being right affirms and inflates our sense of self-worth. Our culture has convinced us that to be right is to get ahead, to advance. Therefore, we will do or say anything to convince others we are right, rather than opening ourselves up to the possibility of making mistakes. We have elevated our rightness to an unachievable, unhealthy place. If we are proved wrong, we feel somehow Lessened or defeated or humiliated. In some cases, being proven wrong can upset our entire worldview, leaving us unanchored. Eckhart Tolle, a philosopher, goes as far as describing the need to be right as a form of violence. At its mildest, its inflexibility, at its height, it manifests as dominance. He says, "...the compulsion to inflict our opinion of the world on others..." originates in fear. Did you know that your body actually works against you in situations when you are wrong? Research has, has found that when you are put into a situation to defend our, your actions, especially the ones that maybe aren't the right ones, the brain releases a hormone a uh, neurotransmitter uh, uh, called cortisol. And, and the body makes a, a chemical choice of how best to protect itself uh, it's in that case for shame and the loss of power associated with being wrong, and the results are an, an inability to regulate its emotions and handle the gaps between expectations and reality. Or simply put, the brain presents you with four options. Fight, flight, freeze, or appease. The writer of Proverb puts it this way, Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than him. Look at what happens next in our story in verse 11. The seas were getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, and they threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men were greatly fearing of the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made a vow to him. That the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. It's no accident that Jonah is juxtaposed to these pagan sailors. While the men are calling out to their gods, he was running from his. When presented with the opportunity to throw Jonah overboard, they tried all avenues to resolve the issue. While Jonah had settled with death as a solution, the sailors turned to faithfulness to God. This will continue later on in Jonah's story as he does eventually make it to Nineveh. And the begrudging prophet is successful. The people turn to God, and yet Jonah is not satisfied. And yet in this moment, Jonah finds himself in the most unexpected of places, not running from God to Tarshish, not drowning in the black abyss of the sea, but in the belly of a great fish. Over three days and three nights, Jonah contemplates what his fate would hold. And we assume, because we know the story, that he knew that this moment in the fish would pass. Jonah only knew that he was going to die when he went overboard and into the sea. And in fact, by being swallowed by the whale, it almost was prolonging the inevitable in his mind. It's not like God was in short supply of prophets we can just look at the Hebrew scriptures and find that they were a dime a dozen. But what the preceding verses do disclose to us is an earnest prayer of confession to God, a conversation by which Jonah owns his shortcomings and mistakes, recognizing and embracing his consequences. Jonah has quite possibly the most unique teachable moment in the swell of the storm, the depths of the sea, and the digestive system of a whale here mistakes are laid bare, rightness is no longer applicable, and next is literally the intestinal process. Chapter 2 verse 10 ends with the most pleasant of phrases, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. In California, a, a math teacher's methods have caught the attention of a lot of people. Unlike the majority of teachers that will mark an answer wrong, and put a grade on top of a test, this teacher began to highlight the precise spot in the math problem where things had gone wrong. She realizes that by putting a grade on a test, students look at their grade only to decide whether they are good or not, whether they can succeed or not. And she explains it this way, by taking the grade off their test, I thought that they might spend more time looking at what they got right and what they got wrong. I wanted to refocus them on actually learning the content. She actually extends the learning experience beyond the students, inviting their peers to put work into each other, trying to help figure out what went wrong. And then she allows the student to retake the test with a new version of the test. God made us to be teachable people. Many, if not most of us, were raised with the thought that God is waiting idly by for us to make a mistake just to punish us in the present and to send us to eternal damnation in the future. But what the story of Jonah teaches us, and more widely what the radical moments in Jesus' ministry teach us, is that God desires for us to learn from our mistakes and shortcomings, changing our way of thinking and living every single day. The book of Proverbs gives us a bit of wisdom. It states in Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. As one psychologist put it, when we find ourselves terrorized by thoughts of mistakes, we lose the opportunity to live more fully. There is never a single correct decision or pathway. Constructs such as mistakes and failures block us from a richer and more rewarding texture of life's possibilities, liberating ourselves from this fear, enabling our lives to unfold with great purpose. Making mistakes with high confidence and then being corrected is one of the most powerful ways to absorb something and retain it. And Jonah's prayer from the belly of the whale was not one of, God, save me from the belly of this beast. Instead, Jonah offers a prayer of thanksgiving for deliverance from what he believed to be certain death of drowning from the depths of the sea. Instead of of being consumed with the emotions of embarrassment and pride and defensiveness, imagine the possibilities that come if we postured ourselves in humility and openness and acceptance. God literally made our bodies to respond to teachability in some pretty remarkable ways. Scientists have found that our brains have another chemical called oxytocin, which is activated by human connection that opens up the networks of our executive brains, or the uh, prefrontal cortex, further increasing our ability to trust and open ourselves up to sharing life with others. In other words, in our moments of wrongness and error, to open ourselves up to the teachable nature of this moment releases a chemical of joy and euphoria into our brains, causing us to find a deeper connection with those that we might have wronged. As Alexander Pope put it, to err is human, to forgive is divine. So I wonder what it would take for us to believe that we are teachable. Well, it begins with an openness to the possibility that we can get it wrong, And admitting that we get it wrong will not blow up in our face. But it goes beyond that. I am teachable is about going into life with a growth mindset. This means approaching each day with the fluidity that I can be open to listen, to observe, to learn, rather than always to speak and to think and to act based on my impulses and preconceived notions about others' rightness and truth. Teachability and teachable people approach life with an understanding that that they can learn from anybody regardless of that person's state, status, or station in life. Such a spirit requires humility, and such humility keeps the door open for knowledge and truth to settle into our hearts and our mind. Part of the journey is obtaining knowledge, is receiving information that challenges and conflicts with our existing beliefs. In order to become more teachable and to expand our knowledge, it is imperative that we resist the urge to always be right. The invitation of Jesus is to continually change our way of thinking and living as we follow his leadership, his words, his ways, and his ministry. No one wants to be wrong. But how we handle our wrongness determines our future, our journey with God, and the impact we will have in our lives and the world around us. No one wants to be swallowed in a whale of wrongness. But vomited out of the sea creature, Jonah heads to Nineveh to be and to do what God called him to. This is our whale moment, this is our time. To turn to God for guidance on how we might discover our teachability, whether we realize we are in the stomach of the beast or not. As one person put it, human beings were given a left foot and a right foot to make a mistake, first to left, then to right, then to left, and repeat. So let us dance life with God, the great teacher of finding a new way of thinking living today. Let's enter into a time of silent reflection and response.